podcast. This is your host, Michael Oliver. Before jumping into today's episode, I want to share an exciting community update with you. We now have a partnership portal on our website that outlines the different ways you can get involved with the Flying Sage community. Here you can learn about our community platform and the different perks membership and how to become a sponsor or affiliate or facilitator within our community. All right, so for today's episode, we are going to be speaking with Corey Firth. Corey is a human impact community builder, communications entrepreneur, and plant medicine advocate who has spent the last five years building communities in the mental health and wellness space. After a 20-year battle with depression, he has committed his career to a vision where the stigmatization of mental illness is replaced with compassion, transformation, and community connection, a world where we work together to reunite with our innate abilities to heal, overcome, create, and actualize our full potential. As a flow state breathwork guide, integration and microdosing practitioner, and the former executive director of the Canadian Psychedelic Association, Corey is passionate about collaborating with other advocates to expand education, equity, and psychedelic access at home and abroad. Corey spends his time working with the Nakian Foundation and the Numa Center for Social Wellness. In this episode, we discuss Corey's personal journey with psychedelics, his previous work with the PAC, and his current work with the Nakian Foundation. We talk about the importance of story with psychedelics and the amazing work being done at Nakian with their storytelling project. We also take some time to chat about Corey's new venture with the Numa Centre for Social Wellness in Kingston, Ontario. And then finally, we share our thoughts on what democratizing psychedelics might look like. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And without further ado, here is Corey Firth. Hi, Corey. Thank you so much for joining us on the Flying Stage podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How's your day going so far? Yeah, thanks for having me, Michael. It's uh, it's great to be here. Day's going day's going well. It's Friday, so everything's uh, everything's looking up. Amazing. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. It's been a long time coming, and I'm excited to get into a bunch of different projects and discussions around the things that you're currently working on. Um, as with most guests that I have on the podcast, I'd like to kind of start with a bit of an origin story. And so I thought I would just start by asking you, where did your journey with psychedelics start? Yeah, it's a good, so I love that question. I love the way that starts things off. Um, so I was first exposed to drugs when I was in grade four. Um, we were, I was the type of kid in class that just loved to get out of class for any reason, a school assembly, recess, even going to the principal's office was a much more exciting experience for me than sitting in a classroom. So I remember our roughly, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm adding some color here, but essentially our, our teacher came in and, and said like, Oh, we're going down to the library for a presentation, go down to the library. Again, we're in grade four, like nine years old or something like that. Um, walk in the room and all the bookshelves have been pushed to this, 
to the sides of the room. And in, in the middle of the room is a four by six masking tape rectangle and four big burly cops standing over that rectangle. Uh, and we sat there for what might've been an hour or so while they told us about how um, detrimental using drugs were specifically talked about marijuana. And that was my first connection and understanding of drugs. Like my parents, you know, had drank alcohol and things like that, but not to excess. So it was just a casual thing that I thought was part of society, but drugs in general, outside of that, I hadn't, I didn't know anything about cigarettes. Even at that time, I didn't know anything about obviously cannabis. And they just essentially said, like, if you do drugs, you'll end up here or worse, you'll be dead. So that was kind of like the first touch to, to drugs. And like I said before, I'm, I, I wasn't the type of kid that liked to sit around in school and, and listen to teachers talk and that kind of stuff. I like to do my own thing. So I was always curious and exploratory. So that didn't really turn me off. It kind of turned me on. Uh, so I uh, was intrigued by that, scared by that, of course, but like there was always something there. And then I think a, uh, grade eight was when I first had uh, smoked my first joint. I think of cannabis as a psychedelic and we can talk about that. I think when we get to talking about what I'm doing here in Kingston, um so my first the first time i smoked a joint i also got busted by my parents uh so it was an interesting time of like facing uh wanting to explore these mind-altering substances while also being met with resistance of some kind from levels of authority mm -hmm. but it didn't really stop it just kind of kept me wanting to learn more about them because the first time that i uh, smoked a joint I felt this relief of some anxiety and depression that had started because right around that same time, 10, 11, 12, I, um, I developed depression and every time I would, um, smoke cannabis, I would find some relief in that. It was just recreational, but I always kind of knew there was something there. And then throughout high school, I explored, uh, you know, mushrooms and, and, and other substances recreationally with friends. And then it really wasn't until my mid to late twenties where I had a friend, uh, exploring these things more therapeutically for himself, again, his, in his own way, because there wasn't really any guidance then. Uh, and he took me through a, a, a hero's dose, five gram mushroom journey. Uh, and then I, that kind of sent me on a, a path of doing some solo work with, with mushrooms and then some solo work with MDMA. And then I ended up going down to Costa Rica um, and doing a, a seven day ayahuasca retreat. And then that's when things like really opened up. And then I got uh, like everything changed after that uh from my in my life and and it set me on a path of working in the space as i'm doing now and some other like kind of personal stuff too which we may get to but lots and lots and lots of different changes after that came through wow beautiful well, thanks for sharing that it sounds like definitely given you know your age i feel like it's a typical story i hear from people with that very first introduction, just like th that crazy amount of stigma and just like the this, this stark black and whiteness of um, the harms that are presented with psychedelics, uh, with drugs in general, right? And just kind of like the blanket statement, drugs applied to like every single drug, basically, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, totally. It, it, I, I often have, and I, I have these in meditation, and I've had these in some psychedelic journeys sometimes where I get, I go back to that place where I was in the library and, and beyond the four burly cops, is a is a circle of uh women mm. and they're sitting around a fire instead and so we're actually i i kind of move i get up and i go over there and i sit down and then i learn the truth right that yes these are harmful and can be challenging but they can also be medicine and so yeah i, I always come back to that and i i feel like now we're actually creating that other 
that other space, that other circle, you know? Totally. Uh, that's beautiful. Creating the creating a circle where those burly cops now might be turning around also and like walking into the circle. Yeah. I, I could actually really use these as well, honestly. Totally, totally. Uh, that's awesome. Okay, so you shared a little bit about the, the very beginning and then moving into some of your early experience with psychedelics, working with ayahuasca in, in Costa Rica, and then that opening up quite a few things. I'm curious if you could share a little bit, bit a bit now about maybe how your origin started with kind of working with psychedelics professionally, I guess, or like kind of coming into the, what you could say, like psychedelic ecosystem or the psychedelic space. Curious, what's yeah. where did that start for you? Yeah, so I, I like I said, I had that friend who sort of introduced me to mushrooms um and then i had a, a therapist actually uh that i work with that uh he did some underground stuff at the time uh and he's been doing underground work for 15 maybe more years uh maybe 20 years and um he sort of offered up more guidance and more safety and and, and more uh just, just some more clarity around the best ways to do this. And then he also added in sort of that cognitive behavioral, you know, the psychological mind expanding therapeutic side of it as well. Not just this go in and do your own self-exploration, which I think is beautiful. Both of those are beautiful, but it gave me a little bit more context to kind of really deepen the work. So that was that. And then, and then because I'd started to get into this, it became a passion for me because I had transformed through some really severe depression and, some which turned into suicidal ideation. I I got rid of that. Like I haven't felt suicidal since essentially the first ayahuasca journey. Um, and so I knew that there was something special here. I needed to transition, you know, what I do for a living into something that's more meaningful. Mm -hmm. And so when I came back from that ayahuasca journey, I I'd been four years into uh, scaling up my, communications agency and it was going really well like on paper uh i was working with some of the biggest brands in the world like universal studios amazon uh kim kardashian just some big big name brands that materially you know seemed cool and nice but you know everything behind the scenes for me was just horrible so when i came back it was like i can't do this capitalistic materialistic pursuit anymore i need to do something that like has some passion in it so i essentially shut down my agency, transition, sold some things, transitioned some things, and then uh, just took some time. So traveled a bunch and met with some people, did some consulting, and then landed a gig helping someone build, buy, purchase first, purchase a retreat center down in Costa Rica, and then brand and build the the model and the, the, the branding and communications for the, the retreat center itself. Um, that was the first foray into it because it was an ayahuasca retreat center. And, um, and then the pandemic hit not long after that and the money had dried up from this retreat because no one was traveling. Mm -hmm. So I decided to kind of take a step back again and go back into the consulting and just kind of see what was out there. And then at the same time, the Canadian Psychedelic Association was hiring their first executive director. So I just took a shot, applied, landed it and worked with them for for a, a full season, a full contract. Um, and that was really the beginning of kind of me getting into the space here in Canada. Wonderful. Okay. Thanks for sharing this. I'd love to dive into just a little bit of what that experience was like for you with the, the CPA or now now called the PAC. Um, but before that, I the next question I did have was kind of perfect because you segued to it a little there. Uh, was just going to ask you, like, what is your passion 
Um, you mentioned, you know, this desire to find something that you were more passionate about. And I'm curious to know, maybe now you've been in the space for a while, you've been focusing on all these amazing projects. Um, have you figured out what your passion is yet? And if so, uh, what is it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't always know how to answer that question. Uh, the, the, the first thing that comes to mind is that the, I know that the word passion comes from I'll root word. I can't remember which one, but it actually means suffer. Mm. And so the interesting thing about that word for me and, and this question is like, my passion comes from my own suffering. And so my suffering has really been around depression and, and suicidal ideation and, you know, not feeling like I belong in, in a certain way. Um, and not feeling like I've had the external support, uh, because the, the things that I had tried here, you know, didn't cr really quite work for me. So I think my passion really is in, in sort of, it's sort of what I might call like sovereign wellness. So like finding ways and creating spaces and creating opportunities for people to create sovereignty within their own human condition in a lot of ways, because that's what I've done for myself. I went and studied functional medicine. I studied, uh, you know, business in the wellness space. And I've studied all these different things, built communities and done all these things that helped me create a, a, a more balanced life for me. So I would say it's finding ways to create opportunities for others to find that sovereign wellness and sort of unchain themselves from their limiting uh, health conditions with, you know, new alternatives that they may not have seen that are more natural in, in the way they work. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's really interesting about the root of the word passion. I never recognized that before. So definitely thanks for sharing that. That's really I hope that's right. It could be purpose, no, but I, I'm pretty I, sure I it's checked, passion. I just looked up while you were sharing <laughs> okay, that. Okay, cool. And yeah, the, uh, passion finds its root in both the Latin word passio and the Greek word path, pathos, which both mean suffering. All right. Yeah. Cool. I wasn't wrong there. <laughs> yeah, no, you're spot on. Amazing. So uh, now jumping back a little bit, you mentioned the working with the CPA was kind of your first introduction to kind of being in the psychedelic space professionally. Um, could you share a little bit more about what that experiences was, was like for you? I'm, I'm curious to know maybe just generally, yeah, what was your role kind of like, what were, what were some of the things that you were up to? And I bet at that time that like, that's a super exciting role to, to land. And I think, I think you no know, people might remember the, uh, the CPA was, was kind of really just getting off the ground at that point. Right. Like, um, lots of exciting things are happening. So curious to hear what that experience was like for you. And then maybe curious if you could share what were some of your biggest lessons from working in the nonprofit space? Yeah, it was great. Uh, in general, working working there. I mean, I, I learned a lot. It helped me a lot with my career. Like for before all that, I'd essentially been in the marketing space for a long time and and ran my own agency. And so I knew how to build a startup. I knew how to sort of build systems. I knew how to I knew how to communicate. And in general, I think, and I still think this, um, psychedelics have a branding problem in, in most instances, uh, if you think of it like that. Uh, it's a communications problem, right? They have some bad PR, they have some, you know, this, this kind of stuff. Uh, so what I really thought of at the time, my role was to build the logistics around that agency, that organization, sorry, uh, to help them create scale and sustainability. So at the time they didn't have a, a huge bank account. Um, they didn't have, you know, a lot of like structured programming. The board was was there, and the, the the group of people that were on that board were great, but there wasn't a lot of structure 
in terms of how they make decisions and deal with conflicts and stuff. So really the 12 months that I was there was about just sort of building up a business that could scale essentially. And yeah, it's in the nonprofit space, which has its own list of challenges. But in general, for me, it was an incredibly rewarding experience because I got to meet some incredible mentors in a lot of ways, uh, learned a lot from a lot of different people in a lot of different ways, both good and bad. Um, got to see the ins and outs, the skeletons in the closets uh, of the space in general, which I think was super useful just to open my eyes to like really what's happening and, and how I can really truly play a role here. Uh, so it was really great in that way. But I think it's some of the biggest lessons for me is like, I think in general, this is not just a lesson within the nonprofit space, but like we kind of have this false sense of scarcity in our, in our world right now. But I actually think it's the exact opposite. And nonprofits are really kind of designed to work in these like limited resources. Mm. And it doesn't have to be that way. And I don't think that the, the organizations that lead uh, psychedelics into this next phase into the, the medical mainstream here in, in the West, I don't think it has to necessarily be nonprofits. I think it has to be just like abundance of transparency. Because even within the nonprofit structure, what I've seen, not just with this, the psychedelic association, but with other nonprofits, is that while the the nonprofit structure is meant to remove conflict of interest, it actually creates maybe potentially more conflict of interest because you have all these different interested parties trying to make decisions around the direction, and and that creates a lot of potential conflict. Um, and so I I don't necessarily like I I think nonprofits are of course very important, and we've seen some of them across the board that have been really successful and helpful in this movement and 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 abroad in other in other categories and other markets, but. I, I would say that like we need a cross between all of them and it's really more about transparency and the abundance of resources that we do have instead of having to work off such a limited sort of mm-hmm. fixed budget when it just it's more than that. So I think that's that's sort of my my experience there and the sort of challenges and lessons I learned along the way. Was there one a particular challenge that was like the biggest for you that you faced working? Uh, in the nonprofit space or with with the PAC? Yeah, I think in general, like this psychedelic space is so new that it's still figuring itself out. Like in terms of the branding perspective, like it's a, yeah. it's a startup. The whole space is a startup. The whole space. And when you're in a startup, like there are all these different directions to pull you, right? And it's so hard to like stay focused on, you know, one or two small things. So I would say in general, like with how big and how, fast things exploded it's it was really hard to like ground into like a a clear direction the analogy i use is the the red dress analogy if you've seen the matrix when neo and morpheus are walking down the street and morpheus is trying to give neo a lesson and there's just all these similar people walking by in black suits i think it is and then a woman walks by in a red dress and neo like turns like that and then he turns back around and the bad guy's there and blows his head off I think that's how it goes anyway. But the analogy is that there are these red dresses that distract us from what it is we're trying to do in life. And I felt like in general, I feel like in general, there are a lot of red dresses in the psychedelic space because we're so focused on like this this therapeutic potential and the regulations there. But yet there's this like whole opportunity for general well-being that isn't being explored, but are starting to. And then you've got like all the different paths within that therapeutic side of like like government business. Uh, You've got like the board governed sort of regulatory stuff from the the board of colleges that are going to eventually regulate this stuff. You've got universities. 
then you've got the general public, you've got the existing practitioners. So like, there's a lot of things to distract from someone's mission. And I think in general, not just related to the psychedelic association, but I think that's a problem that a lot of organizations and people face at this point. And I don't think it's going to go away and probably ever, it may never go away. Cause I think the potential for psychedelics are far beyond what we're talking about now. Yeah, totally. Amazing. So shifting away now from the CPA or the, or the PAC and the, and the work that you did there, you know, there was, I think you can share a little bit about the transition between if you wanted, but I was going to then kind of shift gears and ask you about the work that you're now doing with Nikian. And maybe you could even just start by telling people what the Nikian foundation is. Yeah. So I worked with, uh, yeah, I worked with the, the, the psychedelic association and Right at one of the last projects that I was working on was creating a, a business association, essentially, um, so that there was a little bit more structure around that. And we had met, uh, I had met um, Sanjay and Linda, who uh, are really the the folks behind the Nikane Foundation, Sanjay, Sanjay Singhal and, and Linda Medeiros. And um, I was just blown away by them. I was just so inspired by what they were doing and and how intentional they were and how um, excited they were and how they were doing their own work. And yeah, they weren't bogged down by too much because they could do their own thing um, and they could be really creative. And I felt like I was lacking creativity in my job at that point. So I was already at my 12 month mark. And so I decided I'm going to just take a bit of a risk here and give some notice to the psychedelic association so I can help onboard the next executive director, Jay Katz, who's an amazing guy and doing an awesome job over there. Uh, and then it just happened that during my uh, time off uh, really quickly, I was able to uh, start working with Nikayan and, and we met right at the right time because they were kind of in this transition phase. They were one of the largest funders of psychedelic research in the world. And they had devoted a lot of money to a bunch of different studies. And they were kind of at this place where they had realized, you know, if Health Canada starts to get involved and starts to pay for some funds, uh, for some research, sorry, then uh, they can transition into more education. And right around the same time that I left the Psychedelic Association, Health Canada announced, uh, I think it was a $2 million fund to help uh, folks study psilocybin. And so that was kind of their alarm, like, okay, now the governments are getting involved. Now our funds can be used now for education. So we met, we did a strategy session. They took me through some of their strategy processes. I took them through some of mine. And then we developed uh, the Psychedelic Storytelling Project, mm -hmm. which was essentially the, the the reason for it all was, like the hypothesis we had was that the reason why almost everybody <laughs> from our experience will, ha has tried psychedelics is, is because of a story from a friend because they're not regulated, because they're not promoted like everything else in the world that we have for at our disposal for our health and well-being, you had to kind of have this underground railroad sort of situation where people would tell people about it. They'd offer up protocols and safety mechanisms for how to experience it. And you would listen to people tell their stories and then you would be inspired by that. And really at the end of the day, for me, I love root words of, of words, by the way, so I'll do this maybe quite a bit, but the word dialogue comes from two root words, dia, which means moving towards, and logos, which means meaning. And so having dialogue creates meaning. It helps us to move towards meaning anyway. And so if we could take storytelling, because that's like this impetus to a lot of people's experiences, and we and we leverage the power of dialogue in telling stories and interviewing people to get to the meaning of their stories, 
then could we create a resource that is actually not just a bunch of stories, but actual knowledge exchange? So moving beyond just education, because education sort of like, a lot of us think it has to come from some like institution or some academic uh, sort of structure. This is now more about knowledge mobilization or knowledge exchange, where it's like putting fuel on the fire that already exists within the space and giving people a chance to kind of come out of the psychedelic closet. Or uh, Cameron Dubois, who works for MAPS, uh, he's there, I forget what he does there with MAPS US, but he uh, he said coming out of the psychedelic medicine cabinet, which I love, instead of the psychedelic closet. So it, that was really the intention there. And yeah, we've been working uh, for the last eight months on that. And we're actually currently about to expand our formats to more question-based, because what we realized through the storytelling process was that there were still a lot of unanswered questions within the space. So now we're going to take it even a step further and go out to the community and ask very specific questions, all, all from different perspectives, not just from the therapeutic perspective, to ask about recreation, to ask about tradition, tr to ask about therapy, to ask about guiding, to ask about the underground, to ask about retreats, to ask about just different personal perspectives around how to answer the questions, how to create little protocols for yourself. So we're moving in that direction now. We're still going to have some stories available, obviously, but we're going to really take it out and, and move into more question base and, and take the quality of our content up a notch as well. So yeah, let's try to, that's sort of like the timeline from the last like nine months or so, but I hope that does it justice. Yeah, that's great. And it's so amazing to hear about this project and it's incredible the work that Nikian's doing here. Uh, one of my personal like concerns with the development of the psychedelic space is that one particular narrative, whatever it be, like maybe it's like the, the medicalization of psychedelics or the decriminalization mm -hmm. of psychedelics. But my concern is that one particular narrative kind of takes over and becomes like the status quo in some sense, like kind of driving a lot of the change in one narrow direction. And I really love that what you're doing with Nikian and the storytelling project is really opening that up and making it pretty clear that there's so many different avenues to using psychedelics because all of these stories that you're getting, I assume, are so different and unique, right? And you're also not just focusing, like you say, on like the therapeutic use or the medical use. You're like opening up to people to share, brave people to come in and share their experiences using it like with their friends or yeah. like years ago when you know things were even more stigmatized. So I can't say how excited I am that, that you're doing this work and that the Nikin Foundation is really yeah, leading the way with this with the storytelling. I'm curious to know, you know, what has been maybe something that's really surprised you uh, hearing all of these stories. Oh man, uh, surprise! I mean, I I don't know if I was super surprised. Like I always kind of felt like this was we were going to get a ton of different people sharing a bunch of different things, but we have sort of conducted a bit of a really amateur meta-analysis on sort yeah. of been what's been going on and it's really just been me like going back and reminding myself what these stories were about in a lot of ways and so some of the things that like stand out for me again i don't know if they're like overly surprising but the one thing that i always like to tell people is that how to change your mind by michael poland changed a lot of people's minds <laughs> it's it's like far and away the number one resource when i ask people about what to like what what's one tool or resource i would ask at the end of the, the interviews what's one tool or resource you would recommend and, and yeah like 90 percent of the time it's they at least mentioned michael pollan uh so that's one thing i think um a couple other things like integration everyone talks about integration and the importance of it which 
I'm not taking that away and by any means it's very important but there's no definitive guide to integration no matter how many people tell you they think they know what the guide is or the protocol is there's many ways to do it and it takes a long time that's again not a surprise but I think like an important thing to mention is that everybody not everybody a strong majority of people that came and told their story said they're still integrating their experience or their experiences and so integration is a, is a long game I think it would be another thing. And then maybe the last thing, or maybe two things, I think, uh, now that they're coming up, but a, a guide doesn't have to be a doctor. It doesn't have to be a therapist. It doesn't have to be a board licensed, certified, blah, blah, blah. It can be your friend. It can be your partner. It can be your dad. It can be uh, a shaman. It can be all of these things. And I think you were talking about like just this narrow kind of path we're on. That seems to be obvious to me that like, well, because it doesn't exist really at this point, most people have worked with a guide, a underground person, a friend, a partner or whatever. And those stories actually, to me, are really, really, they add a whole nother level of meaning because if you do it with a friend or you do it with your partner, like for me, I've done some work with my partner and it's like a whole nother level of meaning when we bring the intention in, in that form. And then she's sitting for me and, you know, she works me through, even though you know, she doesn't have the psychological background. She knows me. She knows me better than a therapist is going to know me. And so she sometimes will, she'll be stuck in my biases with me, but sometimes she'll know the thing that I need to nudge me through. And oftentimes that's way more impactful than a therapist. And I've done work with therapists. I've done work with shamans. So I've seen the value in all of these paths. And, and now I've seen it in all these stories. And so I think we, we just have to remember, I think over time and, and not forget that like a guide is a guide. It's not a board certified something or other. Um, and then I think the last thing, I mean, maybe this would be the most surprising thing is um, when people put uh, ritual in to their experiences, when they like actively looked for traditions, they actively looked for practices and disciplines and rituals that are tied to these experiences from thousands and thousands of years ago. It seems as though more meaning is created. So when they go and work with a traditional Cudinero in Mexico and do mushrooms and go back to the Maria Sabina lineage, for example, they come away with some deeper connection. And it oftentimes feels more connected to spirit, which I think is a, a bigger component to what psychedelics provide that we're, we're not as like vocal about. So maybe it's that, but I think ritual, people that added the ritual part or they sourced out ritual versus doing it like, you know, in a clinic or something, yeah. they, they, they gathered a little bit more meaning. So it seemed beautiful. Yeah. Those are such interesting points to take away from all these stories that you've been hearing uh, while mm -hmm. you were sharing these, I remembered a post that you had actually shared. I think you shared it on across all your socials. It was uh, kind of some of your reflections, things that you've learned. And a lot of what you've just shared was there. You had kind of listed seven things. And so I think there you've shared a lot of the ones that are surprising. And I just wanted to, to highlight a couple like two other ones that you mm. didn't mention just now. And one of them, which isn't surprising, but is the SSRI one, right? Just noting right. that SSRIs aren't cutting it. And then the second one was community as the number one integration tool. I'm just 100%. curious if you could expand on those two as well. Oh yeah. I, I think just a lot of people would start off. Like one of the questions that I ask is, um, what were you looking to overcome or transform? So it's before we get into the experience itself. And I ask them that and they go oftentimes, again, it's, this is like a non uh, scientific analysis that I'm giving you here, but 
oftentimes they would say I was using this XYZ drug or, and it's not even just SSRIs. It's like even the talk therapy folks that would come in and say like, I was just talking my ear off with the same stuff over and over again. Uh, but yeah, they, so they, you know, a lot of folks, you know, just voice their, uh, the lack of effectiveness with our current drugs and SSRIs. And then, yeah, the community piece was like, again, it's similar fashion with Michael Pollan's book. Oftentimes people would say, maybe they wouldn't say community, but they would say, you know, a group of people, or they would say, have a confidant or a friend, someone you can talk to. So it was clear. And I would say that was almost a hundred percent people that came back and said, like, either they would say that that was the most inter important integration tool, or they would say, that's something I would recommend to someone because I didn't have that. So it was a big topic of discussion. And uh, I think it's going to continue to grow over the next couple of years, especially as regulations continue to stall. Right. Is there any stories that you've heard that have really stood out to you um, for whatever reason? And is there, are you able to share any of those with us? Yeah, I'll, I'll share the ones that are, that are public. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. What's that? I was going to say, and if not, um, I'm also curious to hear your, whether or not you've shared your own story with Nikki and, and then if you could also share that with us. It's cool. I haven't, so we can talk about that too, but okay. uh, the one story that pops out, uh, and there's a couple that are in my head too, but I don't think they're live on the, on the platform yet. So I don't want to share them yet just because yeah. uh, there's an approval thing we do with each person. Of course. Uh, so there's this guy, uh, Fed Rico. It's not Fred Rico. It's Fed Rico. Uh, really interesting guy. I forget where he's from, but uh, he developed something because of a, a bad, a botched uh, dental surgery. He developed something called dystonia, which I had never heard before until this story. And he shared with me, and I think he said it was because of this surgery. It could have been the infection he had before or whatever, but he had some something happen where he developed this thing called dystonia, which is like a I think it's an, uh, something to do with your your nerves and the connection to your spine potentially and your brain. But essentially one side of his whole, his face started to go numb and then it became his whole body. Mm -hmm. So he, he his muscles contracted on one whole side of his body uh, and created like a real paralyzing type experience for him where he couldn't function in a lot of ways. And then I believe it was mushrooms uh, that he started started to get the connection back. And then he's used mushrooms regularly. It took him a long time, but essentially he used mushrooms to help him build up the 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 nerve connection back into the whole side of his body. And I don't think he's out of the woods yet, but he's like he's gone from not being able to speak clearly and and even move clearly to like I wouldn't even have noticed if he didn't if if he didn't tell me that's what he had. Like he's he's had a massive transformation. And that's not the only one. Like there are what I call I've been kind of trying to categorize these stories. Like yeah. what are the types? Like there's like sort of these traditional ones, there's recreational ones, there's therapeutic ones. This is like what I would describe as like a miraculous recovery. And there's a few of them there. There's one guy that that um, I think is a pretty public story. I think it was on like nature or something, or maybe it was natural ge New geographic or something, but he had been paralyzed from the neck down or the waist down, I think. And he took mushrooms at a festival and ended up like feeling his toes. And he eventually started to walk and now he walks again. So it's like these, there are these miraculous recovery stories. And I don't want these to go out. I just, cause this is a long form piece. I'm going to add the, the context yeah. of these are not cure all panacea things, but, but this stuff seems to happen. I don't understand or have any right to describe why that happens, 
but it's something's happening, which is pretty fascinating. And and Federico's story is is a wonderful example. A really wonderful guy. Yeah. Wow. Really powerful. And the interesting thing there, I I feel like one interesting thing is like it, those are sound like pretty physical elements, right? A lot of the focus with psilocybin and treatments has has been on mental health and for for good reasons. But like, seem, seems like there's some really interesting um, physical properties that you know psilocybin has that can help with with physical ailments. And yeah, these even though they are maybe rare, these miraculous recoveries make you uh, understand, I guess, why why they're called magic mushrooms in the first place. <laughs> yeah, we can't forget the magic part. Yeah, we cannot forget the magic part. It's not psilocybin. Yeah, like <laughs> it's magic. Well, it's such an important <laughs> part of it. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Okay, and then yeah, are you open to sharing maybe your own story with us? I mean, you've shared already a little bit about. Your background but yeah i'm curious if you have shared your own story on nikine or if you plan to and then you know what would that story be and could you share some of it with us today okay yeah you know what because i haven't i actually haven't done it because i'm the one doing all the interviews <laughs> and so it's kind of like you you're, you're doing all this but you never do it for yourself kind of thing so i've thought about which story i would tell and it's it'd be my my journey with ayahuasca the first ayahuasca uh, experiences that i had um I'm just going to go into it. Like I'm not a, I don't really have a good filter for time. So if it becomes too long winded, just let me know. But it, essentially it's a, uh, I'll keep it short. I won't do the full hour, obviously that I normally do with a storyteller, but okay. yeah, for me, like I said before, I, I was going into ayahuasca because I was kind of at my wits end. I, I, I built up a really nasty depression and that had led to suicidal ideation. But before, um, I had started to like sort of plan how I was going to end it and re remove all my suffering and the suffering that I had thought I was putting on other people too. That was part of it as well. So I'd started to plan that out, but then my brother had a daughter. Uh, he had a, he had a baby girl. And when I met her, I was like, Oh, like there's something special about this, this little girl. And I want to stick around. Like I want to be there in her life. So I kind of, at that point was like, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do something else didn't know what that was. And then a friend of mine and I were kind of going through these parallel paths at the same time. And we're luckily we had each other and we had both encountered ayahuasca at the same time. And we planned to go down to this retreat, uh, which I, I won't, I won't name it, uh, just to not sort of like promote it, um, in case, but, uh, we had planned to go down together. I bailed last minute cause I was too scared. He went proved that proved the safety and efficacy for me. And not long after he came back, I had a bit of a relapse problem and, and I, I had, um, d just felt like I needed to go. Uh, so I booked it within like 20 days. I was on a plane heading down there and the structure is a seven day retreat at this really nice, uh, resort. I paid for the like high end thing. Cause I needed, I didn't, I had heard all these stories and I needed like an ultimate safety and comfort, um, which is one way to do it. I, I think I would do it differently now, but it was a huge part of my growth and, and healing. So I don't take anything away from the experience, of course. But uh, yeah, the path is like four ceremonies uh, in a row. And then you've got some prep and integration kind of bookending them. And the first experience was, you know, pretty nothing. It felt like a mild mushroom trip. I had, I think, like two cups. And my friend who had gone down before, he was kind of my guide. He, he's the one who introduced me to the five gram trip. Uh, and then he, he, he and I were going to go together here. So he told me, um, when you're, he told me two things that stuck with me that were big drivers for how things changed in the journey. 
He said, stay in the Maloka. Maloka, as you know, is where uh, the medicine is delivered and, and the experience kind of happens. He said, stay in the Maloka because that's where the magic happens. Everybody in there, all the energy is together. That's where like things can can happen. And you want to stay in there and you want to move through everything in that space because it's useful. Try not to go outside. If you do, it's more for a break, but come back in and do your work there is what he said. He also said, when you ask, when you give your intention uh, or when you're speaking your intention and you're about to take the medicine, uh, ask for gentleness and kindness. So for the first few cups, uh, the first two on that day, I would say, you know, here's my intention. I don't remember what it was at the time, but I would say, be gentle, be kind. And then I would take it. And again, that first night, it was like a, just a mild mushroom trip. And everyone around me is having like on psychedelic, on, on ayahuasca, a lot, a lot of maybe your listeners and what you know is like these wild experiences people are having these cathartic out, outbursts of emotions and and often you know purging and throwing up and things and i really wanted that like i knew deeply that i needed this massive shakeup and i wasn't having it so i was like this fuck like this sucks like what is this so night one i'm like okay whatever is this all it's gonna be like i don't know was it's kind of disappointed second night uh again i'm back in the maloka there's a new shaman. This The cool thing about this experience is they brought in three different shamans and you have this really cool blend of different traditions, which is really cool. And so I'm working with the shaman saying like, I want this. I want this. I want this. I'm talking to him through the day. And when I go up and I see him at the in the line to get the medicine, he like really stayed with me longer than everyone else and just kind of looked and didn't like say anything, but just kind of like intuitively like said enough. And then I was like, kind of scared. So I, I'm definitely like, be gentle, be kind, you know, like, be gentle, <laughs> be kind, like, take the first cup, take the first cup, uh, go back to my mat, I'm, I'm sitting there, again, nothing's happening, people are starting to erupt now, the whole place is going nuts. And I'm just sitting there, which was nice, right? I was like, in this calm place, but I was wanting that massive release. So I'm like, fuck it, I'm going to go outside, I'm going to see what outside has to offer, even though my friend said, stay inside. Mm. Oh, the third thing he said was, if you can hear them call for another cup, that's likely a sign that you're good to go. So go get more. Mm. Uh, that was his advice. I don't know if that's good advice or not. So take that for a grain of salt, anyone who's listening. But uh, so I'm outside, I bring my blanket, I bring my pillow outside, I'm laying on the grass at Costa Rica, beautiful, clear night, the stars are out. It's wonderful. It's an incredible view. The medicine's like kicking in in a way where I like, things are becoming brighter and beautiful. And then all of a sudden, the uh, the the stars go out. In the sky the stars and the moon all go out it's pitch dark and one light one star pops it on like a light and then all of a sudden i'm like playing with the star i can turn it on turn it off turn it on turn it off and now i'm like oh this is really starting to kick in and then uh and then i felt myself sort of melt into the earth six feet under but i could sort of make way of like what was above me like you could kind of see through the dirt and the grass and, and people were walking over me and i could feel oil being pumped out of me and I could feel cement being laid on top of me. I felt like I was mother earth. Like I blended with the earth and I could feel all the things that we were doing to it and all the things I could feel water running through it. It wasn't all bad. It was all like the good and the bad of mother earth. Um, and then this giant statue grew out of my body and into the sky and connected with, with the moon. And I just felt this interconnectedness of like the planetary systems and and everything that, is beyond our physical earth uh, and everything beyond me as a physical being, but in like this connection back to stardust or something of some kind, I, I don't know the visuals of that, but so it became, it started to become visual and started to become like really intense and uh, incredible. Uh, and then I hear a guy come by and go second cup. 
And so I'm like, all right, let's go. Yeah, he said it. And I'm out here now and apparently all the good stuff happens there. So I'm starting to feel it. Let's go back. I run up first guy in line for the next cup. <laughs> I don't remember my interaction with the shaman, but I didn't ask for gentleness and kindness mm. with the second cup. So I slam the second cup. I run back to my bed. Now I'm back in mm. and got everything good. I was just hanging out with mother earth. I'm, I'm ready to keep going here. I lay down and almost instantly I, I was also right beside a speaker and there was some Icaros being played and some live stuff and some stuff on a speaker. And I felt my whole body uh, evaporate into the, the vibrational frequency of the music. And like every cell of, of me split apart and I just became nothing. No, there was no language, no sex, no nothing. No, uh, yeah, nothing existed. I didn't exist. I language didn't exist. I didn't know I, I was gone, just gone. And it was terrifying. And so I landed back. Uh, this I kind of floated above my body. So I kind of floated out of body, separated, and then went through what might have been a, uh, an entire century, it felt like. And then I came back and landed. It could have been an hour <laughs> in real time. Uh, and then I came back and landed, but it was so jarring that I, I just purged everywhere all over uh, my blanket and my pillow and and then into this bucket and then when i'm puking in the bucket all these things are becoming clear this relationship that i was in this work that i was in my past traumas and experiences they almost became like little figurines within this tar like puke that i had in the bucket and i could see them like becoming clear and so that was really like the the next two ceremonies after that i would it was like the work on all of those things so then I, I kind of came in and the, the, the third night, I was distraught after that night, by the way, like it was tough. The next day was really rough, but I did a breath work. I connected with some folks, did some yoga and ate, ate well. And then the third night, it was like, I became, I tapped into this plant resource. And so all those things that I was kind of reviewing on that first night or second night, I guess, I was able to work through. So every time I would do, I, I just started to channel my breath a little bit. Every time I would breathe in, I'd breathe in one of those experiences and then I would breathe out like the healing, whatever I needed from that. And then I got really clear about some, some things I needed to do. Uh, and then uh, on the third night, something was like implanted in me. I, was, I had this experience of, I was laying down on my stomach and I could feel this, um, it's hard to describe, but this energetic pulse that pulsed down on my spine and shook like my whole spine up. And I just felt this being enter me. That's what it felt like. It felt like I was like, implanted with uh, another person um, and through integrating that experience it was actually my daughter um, because I had actually had some other really interesting experiences around seeing the relationship that I was in at that time as something I needed to get out of and separate from uh, and that this other woman was going to come into my life very clearly uh, we were going to have a daughter together and I always wanted to be a father um, so yeah she, she kind of came to me that night and this was a few years later, obviously, but I ended up, I actually have my, my daughter Rose. Um, but that, that was sort of like one of the, the big insights. The other one was that I was going to open a space. I was going to, um, you know, work in this space and be on in, in a place of sort of the public eye, I guess it was sort of this like obvious presentation type, uh, setting where I, uh, had to follow that. But a, a lot of this comes in, I'm sort of describing like you get these glimpses of the future almost, or these glimpses of things you need to do. This is what I had, I guess, on the fourth night. Uh, I just went through this almost movie screen of my life from before to like what's going to happen in the future. 
Um, and it was like, this is going to take work, but these are the things that like are here for you. Um, so opening up a space, which I now open up a space here in Kingston, this new person, that's kind of your soulmate. And then this daughter that's coming and then a few other cool things. Um, but like, this is sort of what's possible for you if you kind of move through this healing. So that was really the, the, the big sort of release on the fourth, fourth, uh, ceremony. And then, yeah, it's been just like a real interesting integration. Like I'm still integrating that experience, I would say. And this was six years ago or so. Wow. That's incredible. What a story. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. I really was tuning into those visuals that you're describing too. It's awesome that you remember those distinct things like the statue kind of emerging from yourself and reaching the sky and then the spine and like the evaporation into the sound waves. Like it's very, <laughs> very visceral experience. Um, sounds like incredible i'm curious if like that experience for you how it was maybe how it distinguished itself from other experiences you've had with psychedelics i mean i, I think you said this was your first time with ayahuasca right yeah um sorry i keep asking the question you want yeah to ask, sorry. i guess i'm just curious to know like if this was your first time with using ayahuasca like how did the those body sensations differ from other things that you'd experience like was that the first time for example the i mean you mentioned you felt like this person entity enter your body and which you later realized was your daughter um but like in the moment and like maybe the day after this experience as you're trying to integrate it were you like was there a sense of familiarity at all with some of those body sensations or was this like something completely outerworldly that you'd never experienced before uh mostly just like kind of out of worldly I, I didn't have much of there's no there was no education when i went to do this like around what to expect there was barely you, i heard like one or two stories from people or i'd be on like arrowhead or reddit but you're just reading people's experience it's much harder to get context of what's going to happen yeah i did have a big hero's journey on mushrooms but it was like ultimately beautiful like there was no challenge there um, and I had already had some recreational mushroom experiences, so I kind of knew what that come up was going to feel like, but there was nothing like it than I experienced in the, with ayahuasca. What I say with ayahuasca is like, you come to the experience with four boxes of four different puzzles and you go in and you shake all the puzzle pieces up and then you've got to come away and figure out where all those puzzles go. And then you have to build those puzzles afterwards, having mixed them all up. You don't know where the boxes are and you don't know what puzzle has to be built but you come away with some pieces that you've got to put together. And so that comes in many forms. Yeah. But I think what really it did for me, the sensations and the body stuff, is it allowed me to connect to my nervous system mm. in a whole new way, which I think is like an unlocking for a lot of people that deal yeah. with mental health is, is a real understanding of the nervous system. So I would say that that was like the biggest like lesson from that. And there's my daughter right on cue. If you can hear, I apologize. Oh no, it's okay. I can't hear, but that's that's awesome. Perfect. <laughs> um, thanks for reflecting that. I'm curious. Um, one more reflection on your journey. What what was something that really helped you on your integration journey? That metaphor you just shared of the puzzle, I think, is is really interesting, and I, I bet a lot of people um could find that useful. Maybe going into it an ayahuasca journey or coming out of it. And so for you, using that metaphor, maybe like what was something that really helped you maybe put that puzzle back together again? Yeah, I mean, people, so community, yeah. um, but talking with people, making sense of the experience. So that's, again, the meaning making that comes from a dialogue. So having someone you can talk to um, and kind of teeing that up beforehand, especially if it's your first time, teeing up like a regular call with a friend or teeing up some, you know, regular meeting with a therapist. If you have someone that's, you know, psychedelic friendly 
or getting involved with a community and meeting up with people virtually or in person. That's huge. I would say journaling is really useful as well. That's one of the things that like I have stacks and stacks of journals uh, from probably 15 years of journaling, but really the last, like the last little while um, before this experience, it was like just heavy, heavy, heavy emotional stuff. So getting like getting through all that ahead of time and then having a good practice afterwards, I think is really useful. Um, and shout out to my friend, Jenny Dion, who runs Wakeful Travel. Uh, she's got a really cool psychedelic journal if anyone's interested. Um, and then what was the last thing I was thinking about something else? Um, oh, cannabis. I would say cannabis is a master plant. Uh, it can be used as a, a, a therapeutic psychedelic. It can be used as a preparatory plant medicine. It can be used recreationally. And I think it can be really, really powerful in integration. Uh, and I think there's some cool protocols, uh, that we're trying to develop here that that can be used for that but um in general i think because it's legal here in canada we're lucky that we have that and uh we're scratching the surface in terms of its use case and i think it's a, a really powerful uk use case would be for using it in, in, in integration so uh yeah i mean i can talk about any of that but yeah that's no that's great thank you so now looking forward to where you are right now and some of the things you're working on. You mentioned during your ayahuasca experience there, one of the pieces or the fast, uh, not flashback, but like a future insight that you had was to have a space. And here you are, you've now opened the NUMA Center for Social Wellness uh, in Kingston. And so I'm curious to ask, uh, what is the NUMA Center for Social Wellness and how has that come about? Yeah, so our mission with the with the center is to expand social consciousness in a lot of ways. So it's kind of born out of, uh, well, partly my role in this has been born out of my, obviously my personal experience, but also with what we went through with the pandemic, um, being isolated and alone and not really having a lot of resources to help ourselves, um, with the, um, the, all of a sudden very, uh, focused on mental health conditions that a lot of us experienced and dealt with throughout that time. So everything we do is based on, is based on group, um, because we feel that that adds another layer of, of, uh, of healing for folks and transformation. I use the word transformation more than healing because it's not just about healing for us. It's about personal development, professional development, creative development, relationships. We look at, um, psychedelics and, alternative ways of uh improving your your emotional and, and mental well-being um as tools for uh transformation so we bring together different tools resources protocols both clinical and non-clinical both psychedelic and non-psychedelic to help people through sort of the two main pathways of life challenges and life experiences one is like a transition and the other is a transformation so there are people like let's say someone graduating university, don't know what they want to do in a bunch of debt, transitioning into, a, into the workforce. They're going through a transition there. Um, someone who is uh, at the end of their career, they're about to retire, their kids have moved out, they're transitioning into retirement and then becoming an empty nester. But those are, those are really sort of two very different experiences, but they're very challenging in the way that they come up and they show up. And then you've got these transformations, those people like overcoming 
you know, PTSD or some sort of trauma or mental illness. Um, and then there's like these creative transformations that happen to our personal development type transformations. So we kind of focus on like those two pathways and we bring together, yeah, like I said, clinical, non-clinical, psychedelic and non-psychedelic tools uh, for helping people to um, move through their own experiences in a way that creates like a sovereignty and an autonomy for who they are uh, and what they're going through. And I think the thing that kind of makes us unique, um, especially in the psychedelic space is, you know, there's this huge focus on uh, the therapeutic potential. And I think that's awesome, but we're only building regulations for MDs and psychiatrists at that level at this point. And we're not really focused on how the rest of the people in Canada, specifically, I'm just going to speak about Canada, are going to end up using these things. And so what we really want to focus on is that sovereign individual. I think we feel like if we can help people create autonomy within their experiences, and again, not just psychedelic experiences, but these experiences that we go through, these transitions and transformations, we help people and we help create space where other people can help people, right, in that group format, then we feel like we can really create a healthier community and we can actually in the psychedelic space create a healthier environment in the movement because now we're giving skills to people that they can be more safe be more effective in their own experiences so we really base it on four things set setting skill and support set obviously in, in the micro in the in the psychedelic space it's very obvious a lot of people have heard of set and setting right it's the mindset and it's the environment that you're in but we also add in the skill-based part. So where you're actually learning, it's more of a training than it is like an experience itself. And then you have the support of the group that adds to that. So we have those four pillars that kind of build up our model. And that's, I think the thing that like kind of helps us stand out in this space a little bit where we're focused on the individuals. It doesn't matter who it is. It could be a psychiatrist that's wanting to deliver this stuff, but they want to be healthy for themselves. They got to do that work. So they need a space to do that. So that's one element of it, or it could just be a, a person that's going through some stuff and they need to, they won't, they, they need to feel a little bit more confident, confident in themselves to be able to go through that transition or transformation on their own. So that's really what it's about. Uh, and really, I think like the reason why we do this, the reason why I'm doing this is for the next generation. I think we have the chance and we always have the chance to learn from generations past and create new environments for generations forward. And that's really our hope here uh, is to create a space where someone like my daughter, you know, comes up and she's dealing with stuff and she's going through her own transitions and transformations that she has tools available to her that can help her with that because she's not uh, she's not going to listen to to daddy. You know, there's going to be a time and a place where she stops taking my advice. So, <laughs> Wow, that's beautiful. Well, thanks for sharing kind of the mission and a bit more of the behind the scenes of what's happening with NUMA Center. It sounds like a really special project that you've got going on there. I'm curious to hear, maybe could you share a little bit about like the physical space itself? Like, can you paint a picture for listeners as to what they can oh, expect yeah. kind of coming to NUMA Center? Yeah, I didn't even talk about that. That's actually the coolest part. So one thing I'm, I'm, uh, I'm having fun with is this branding side of the psychedelic space. Uh, and specifically with Kingston, we have a really unique potential here, I think. We have this small town, but we have this big city potential. Within a three-hour radius of Kingston, we reach uh, 14 million people, which is 40% of the Canadian population. Wow. Within an eight-hour radius, we reach 43 million people. That includes upstate New York and more into rural Ontario. And uh, I think I don't think it goes beyond that. But or yeah, it goes into Quebec a little bit, obviously. 
uh, we reached 43 million people, eight hours, 43 million people. That's the, the third largest point in the GDP. So Kingston's like a really unique geographical location for a hub of any kind, but why not psychedelics? The other element of it is we have some really amazing institutions here. We have two major hospitals, a big rehab center that is uh, one of the best in the country. We have uh, the largest, I think, military base in all of Canada and a huge veteran population, which we we all know are you know suffering with certain things. Uh, and then we have three prominent colleges and universities. We have Queen's University, St. Lawrence College, and then the military college. And so we kind of have a really unique kind of education sort of stream as well for the, the healthcare system side of things. But then what kind of holds it all together is this really interesting grassroots foundation. We have almost 600 members in our psychedelic society here in Kingston, and we have a population of 130,000 people. So in all of Canada per capita, it's likely one of the largest psychedelic societies, I would guess. Not that that matters, but it adds to the the, the value that Kingston has because we have this really fascinating grassroots potent, um, foundation that's really created the space for us to be able to open this space. So I say all that because not only do we have that, but we also have the city of Kingston's buy-in on what we're doing. They gave us this space for two years for, for free to bring wow. psychedelic healthcare and psychedelic wellness to Kingston. And so we're actually located in a really cool, unique building. It's a uh, it's uh, it's the old town hall actually of Portsmouth Village, which was a, a part of uh, not a part of Kingston until it was taken over and merged with Kingston. Uh, but it's been used for uh, over a hundred years now for many different things. It was, I, th I think it was was used in in one of the wars as like sort of a, mil a militia hub or or uh, uh, kind of outpost. We have a one of the oldest. It might be the oldest prison in Canada that had shut down a few years ago, but it's just down the street from that, and it uh, it used to house and transfer prisoners. So there's actually some bars on one of the windows in the space. Um, uh, it was used for many many other things, and and now Kingston was awarded a big grant from the government to bring health innovation to Kingston, and they took some of those funds to support this space as bringing some startups in to help them get off the ground, and we're one of those startups. So the space itself is actually just really open. There's two little offices. We use one as like an admin office and then one storage for some of the gear we have, like blankets and uh, bolsters and yoga uh, stuff and soft mats for our experiences. But essentially it comes in different formats. So we have, like I do I do some uh, flow state breath work out of there. Uh, and so that setting is in this kind of really cool circle. We have the big rug and some centerpieces in the middle and you do the, the breath work kind of all heads in and you're contributing to something together, which I can talk about that. It's a really cool, fun experience. And then we do some somatic movement stuff, again, sort of more supportive for the nervous system, for the body, pre and post psychedelic, or not at all, because it's a really powerful discipline as well. And then our we have a four-day program and then a psychedelic sampler. So we do a four-day program with uh, cannabis as a psychedelic, like I mentioned, uh, which has two ceremonies, a rest day and then an integration day. And then there's a fifth optional day for breath work. And then some more ongoing integration if it's needed. But that setting is very similar. It's in a circle setting. There's an altar in the middle. Everyone brings something together. Everyone shares food in that center afterwards, after the ceremonies. Um, and then it's kind of the same setting for our psychedelic sampler. But one of the things that we thought was important, again, going back to the idea of building skill, is to give people the opportunity to dip their toe into the psychedelic experience. It's a new way of thinking about psychedelics, in my opinion, because everyone thinks it's kind of like this I don't, sorry, I shouldn't say everyone thinks. 
I, I would say there's a this popular opinion of like these macro experiences that you have to go to, or there's these like micro ones that are non-perceptual, which I would say that's not even really a micro experience personally, but there's these kind of in-between places that I would say they're more contemplative doses. Uh, and we do that with cannabis so that people can experience again, dip their toe into it, but it's super, super accessible and super safe, especially if you've already have a relationship with cannabis to be able to like come in and out of the experience. So that's the framework of our current programming. And then we're moving to, uh, we're going to be building a bigger portal for, for learning here shortly. We were actually given awarded a grant from Queens university, uh, through their startup incubator program. And so we're going to essentially like build out this bigger, uh, this bigger platform for yeah knowledge mobilization knowledge exchange for that skill based side of things incredible yeah that definitely paints a picture and i remember seeing a photo of the space and i at first i thought it was a church and i was like yeah. that's so cool um yeah, it yeah. Looks like such a special there's space. some history in there we had to smudge the space quite a bit to like <laughs> yeah. yeah but no it's got a really people that come in are like oh i used to come here for so and so or this and that i didn't know i can they're kind of blown away by what we what we were able to do with the space given it so cool. uh, it's a it's a heritage building too so we couldn't do any renovations to it at right. all we had to just kind of take it with yeah. what it was but it's 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 a wonderful space when you come by you you'll uh we'll get you in i would love to yeah it makes me think uh recently we had a panel and and one of our panelists mentioned that there's an awful lot of empty churches and <laughs> around doing nothing and i wonder what we could possibly use those for <laughs> yeah imagine that you had a, a psychedelic choir and yeah and, right uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, that'd yeah. be beautiful that would be insane um beautiful well thanks for sharing a bit more about the NUMA center uh, so yeah. just zooming out now a little bit uh, we're coming closer to the end of our conversation today i just wanted to ask you some more general uh, questions about kind of your thoughts on where the psychedelic movement is heading and so my first question there would be you know what concerns do you have about the psychedelic movement at the moment that are really close to home for you yeah um i think the concern i have is that we're just focused on the therapeutic potential yeah and i get why like I, this is so it's not like a knock to why we're focused on that it's just something that i think is like we're missing a bigger picture I, I believe so i think one of the things that concerns me is the lack of focus on decriminalization like i think that's kind of in general what i've seen across the board in canada anyway is, is sort of a lack of focus on decrim when i think the states have been doing a really good job at that and so personally i'm we're actually doing a lot here in kingston to revive some of the decrim stuff and we're going to be doing a lot here soon i think but i really feel like you asked close to home like i i believe that what we're doing with numa um if any if if the regulations go the way they went with alberta like our framework isn't isn't going to kind of be legal there uh, to be able to use these other substances that are mm -hmm. coming down. We'll still be able to use cannabis because and we'll, uh, our model will still exist and we'll always use cannabis because it is a wonderful plant and is, and it does a lot uh, for people. Um, and you know what, to be honest, we may only ever do cannabis because it is that powerful. But um, if we want to use mushrooms and MDMA and the regulations look like what they did in Alberta, we're, you're going to leave, they're going to leave out a lot of people these existing practitioners we'll call them that yep. have been doing this for many many years that are the ones that are keeping things safe um and i think that's a real mistake because i think if if we're leaning on mds and psychiatrists that don't really know what it's like 
um, to be delivering these things. One, it's going to cost an arm and a leg to do that because they're 300 to $500 an hour. So mm -hmm. it's only going to be accessible for people that have that money or have the insurance. So we're removing access from a whole host of people. Yeah. We're also removing all the traditions from these experiences and those aren't even being close to considered. And that whole, uh, the whole opportunity we have of being able to merge our education and understanding of health and wellness with indigenous ways of knowing that have known the benefits of these experiences for thousands of years, we miss a huge opportunity there to be able to do that in a really nice, considerate and intentional way. And then I think the last piece of it all is we remove the thing that has kept this movement going for the last 50, 60 years, which is the grassroots, small community, mycelium network that has kept this thing going. So if we don't keep this grassroots, if we don't do, if we don't move forward with decriminalization, the thing that's kept this thing alive for the last 56 years, to me, I mean, I think it goes away. So it's really scary to me in a lot of ways. I think communities will still exist, of course, but um, I think we've got to keep psychedelics grassroots. And I think decriminalization is, is a good way to do that. Now we need also support and safety mechanisms. And that's why we're doing what we're doing with NUMA because we want to create the safety within each individual, not having a guide or some authority figure be the one that knows how to do it all, create safety yeah. with everyone and we create safety within the entire movement. So yeah, decrim, keep it grassroots, I think would be like the big things for me. That's my, that's my uh, pedestal uh moment though so i can get off that <laughs> yeah okay that, no that's super awesome i mean it kind of goes into the next question i had for you which was like kind of what are your thoughts on how to balance these things the medical space the recreational space the therapeutic worlds how do we kind of merge those together and so you kind of already answered that and you've um yeah spoken a lot into to how you would want to do that but i'm curious you know if if maybe we could like paint a picture where you know let's say you are director of health canada or maybe like you're in some crazy position of power where you can get to choose exactly how psychedelics roll out across canada i'm curious if you might be able to share maybe just going a bit more into what you're just sharing basically like if you could snap your fingers and kind of have things where you think would be the most safe maybe and like um effective to, like bridging all of these different spaces is there anything else that you'd want to add there or like is, is there a picture that you could paint for us and what you feel like could really be a healthy way forward yeah, I think one of the, just going back to like the, I, I, my daughter's going, uh, going off again, snack time. So I apologize if she's getting in the background. Um, one of the things that we learned from the pandemic is that we can't rely on the government to, um, to get it right with our health, I would say, right? And that's not like an anti-government thing. I'm not saying that. I, I believe the government's very useful for certain things. But I think when it comes to our health, like we should have a little bit more ownership over what we do to keep ourselves healthy. Uh, and I think that uh, we need to look beyond our politicians and our governments to giving us the right to to do what we want to do with our bodies. And there are many ways to do that without having to um, break any laws or uh, go against the grain and, and become this anti-government or anti-establishment type of person. There's a there's a way to do it and merge it together. And so, and I and I think a big way to to do that is to do it in small community and share the blessings with others and share the lessons with others and, and learn from one another. So I guess, I guess what I'm saying is like, we need to, um, 
I think we need to have a little bit more autonomy for ourselves. And I think the psychedelic movement is a great movement, much like the crypto environments uh, and, th and that community is like this idea of like creating your own sovereignty. But again, a sovereignty in a way that is helpful and, and useful and empowering, not fighting against. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's a way there's a real clear way for me, I think, on, in doing that. And I think um, I think if we don't do that again, then we're just we're just losing the potential that we have with all of this. And then I think the the other element of all that, I think the thing that really kind of does it is is bringing in indigenous ways of knowing, um, learning from the elders that have been holding these things sacred for many, many years. We have to bring that into the education discussion. We have to be able to open the doors there for all sides to to learn and heal and grow together. And until we do that, I mean, it's just going to become another pill we pop. And I'm and I'm really concerned that 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 is the 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 thing that's gonna gonna happen. But I don't. I'm not. I don't in general have this pessimistic view. Yeah. Um, but it is just it's just that thing that's underpinning some of the concerns that I have or uncertainties that are out there, I guess. But in general, I'm really bullish. I'm we're I'm having great conversations. We're we're working with um, hopefully here soon an indigenous education uh, company uh, to help us with some of the the bigger skill building stuff we want to do. So like, and then I know there's a whole bunch of other folks. Uh, Pam Criscow, she's out of the University of uh, Vancouver Island, and their program is is really you know, well situated to, to lead the way and that, that really intentional traditional learning. So there's a lot of folks that are out there doing that. It's just one of the concerns I have in general. I think we, we lose, I don't want to lose that. Thank you for sharing that. I want to be mindful of time. I, I recognize your, your daughter is needs to eat. Uh, do you have time for like two more questions? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. She's, she's yeah. under control. She's just, she's just, uh, she uses her voice really well. Okay. Beautiful. Just wanted to make sure. Okay, so yeah, a couple last questions for you. Kind of on the flip side, I'm curious, what inspires you the most about the work that you do right now? Oh, my daughter uh, and my family, yeah. Yeah, so um, watching my partner go through uh, childbirth um, and the postpartum difficulties that, that she's had, mostly like we had a really wonderful experience, really grateful, like really positive in general experience. Uh, our birth ex especially was a really spiritual and really connected, really wonderful experience, but she's gone through some pretty difficult ups and down challenges with postpartum depression. Um, so she inspires me to, to create new ways for folks that are dealing with the same thing to be able to move through those things a little bit more balanced. And then, like I said, if my daughter ever comes across these things in her life, uh, these challenges in her life, uh, to have space for her to be able to overcome whatever that is without it having to be me tell her what to do because I didn't listen to my dad. So what, what's going to make her listen to me? So creating things in the world that uh, allow for that for her is, is a big part of why I do this. That's beautiful. And if you could go back in time and give yourself, your younger self, some advice, uh, what would that be? Go slow. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I don't know where this quote came from, but the the thing that's, it's almost in print. I must might as well get it tattooed on me <laughs> is that slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And, uh, I need to, I probably should have been a lot slower in, in some of the work that I had done and some of the, uh, medicine experiences that I've had and getting back into medicine after not fully integrating and things like that. Um, or rushing too hard to do something or forcing something too quickly. 
so yeah just just slow living in general is like a huge thing that i'm trying to channel a little bit more nowadays and uh it all happens really quickly once you do slow down so that's kind of where the quote comes from yeah that's beautiful i could use some of that too i think <laughs> um amazing and then my, my last question for you i like to ask this sometimes at the end of the podcast aside from you know some of the people that you have mentioned today in the podcast i'm curious if you could share uh, with our audience and listeners some of your psychedelic heroes or you know people in the space that you look up to uh, alive or maybe passed away um yeah people that really like inspire you or have inspired you along your journey <laughs> yeah the list is huge uh i i mentioned pam criscow i think she was like a huge mentor for me uh when i worked with the psychedelic association she's a a wonderful human that i i part of me thinks you know not enough people know who she is because you know she's got such a great uh way of thinking and and building what she's building i think is just really wonderful and so needed in the space trevor miller is also he was also on the psychedelic association board he's been a, a huge uh yeah lighthouse for me showing me some some ways and you know being just really good sounding board for certain things he's just really really amazing doing some amazing work down in mexico too with ibogaine um and then yeah like obviously the like rick doblins of the world i mean i don't think i would have done mdma the way that i did if i didn't hear his story and read some of the stuff that he had been doing uh and obviously being fortunate to live in this time where he's done so much with what he's done with maps as you know with your work there uh with maps canada um and then you know there's like the the classics like ram das and uh i would say alan watts is like a huge I would, I don't, these are like, I don't know if they're heroes or whatever, but they're like people that I look up to. I love listening to them and reading them. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think I always have to come back to the, like my personal heroes in any way related to this work. It all connects. Like when I talk about my family, I talk about obviously my daughter as a hero, my, mm. my partner, Caitlin as a hero, but then my mom and my dad and my brothers are my massive heroes. Like I look up to them tremendously for just like being there for me i'm really lucky i have a great family unit and uh and uh you know i wouldn't be here without them and and for me like they're heroes because of what how they show up how they show up for me but how they show up for themselves and teach me um and then i would just say i would just add like the 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 other two folks that we work with here at numa are named sherry houston i'm just giving shout outs and rich tile the, the two other partners here with myself and caitlin my partner um yeah rich has been my therapist he's helped me with with a lot of things uh now we're business partners together uh and he's really the glue behind the community here in kingston he started this group of like 10 years ago and it's really kept it going and then sherry's just an incredible mentor on the business side of things a, a wonderful friend someone i can look up to in terms of creating you know wonderful intentional things in the world and then i got to give it up to to sanjay at uh at nikayan sanjay singal i think he's just a huge inspiration for what he's done philanthropically for for the space uh and again he does a lot of his work because of his daughter too so i really align with him i love you know getting the chance to sit with him and learn from him and and linda too linda is another woman in the space that i think uh i would love to see you know her uh more people know how special she is i, I don't know if she wants that uh because she she just likes to she's humble and likes to just kind of you know, be quiet and, and, and just do the good work. And she's really good at that. And, uh, I just think I look up to those two tremendously and, and, uh, Christine and Megan and everybody at that in the, in the Nikkei organization, it's a really special, special organization with special people. So, yeah. 
and you, of course, Michael, you're uh, you're a hero in many ways. I love what you're doing with the Flying Sage. I love what you've done with Maps Canada. I mean, the reason why Maps Canada lasted so long, I think, is because of you, and the reason why it still exists and is doing such good work is because of what you've done with that community. So, kudos to you, and and thank you for all you're doing, man. Thank you, Corey. I really appreciate that. And yeah, thanks for listing those names. I'm sure there's people that you maybe haven't remembered or like or couldn't mention there, but I'm sure the list the list goes on, right? Oh, but yeah. that's really beautiful to hear. Uh, some of your inspirations and just to know you know in the space i feel like often we're, we are standing on the shoulders of giants that have kind of come before us and paved the way and so it's yeah really beautiful to hear so thank you so much that kind of brings us to the close of our conversation today all the questions i had for you i really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me uh, it's been really yeah revealing to to hear your insights and your perspective i i really love your mission and what you're doing and i can see a lot of similarities between i think what the, the two of us are doing which is really beautiful especially with like the the sovereignty piece and i can't wait to hear more about what happens in the future here with with numa center and and the work that nikian's doing can't wait to see all the ripple effects that take place and so yeah i want to extend big gratitude to you for for being here today and i wanted to ask you you know for any of the listeners that are, are tuning in to today and in the future what's you know what are do you have, if you have any final uh, thing that you want to share with them please do and then also let us know where people can find you any last words? Uh, <laughs> keep psychedelics grassroots would be the the last thing I want to say. Like, let's just make sure it, it doesn't get taken away from us in that way. Uh, or we let it, or, or we take it away from ourselves, I guess, is the better way to say it. So keep psychedelics grassroots. And then, uh, yeah, you can find me personally on all the social places, Corey Firth. Uh, and then NUMA is NUMA Center. We're only on Instagram there and, and LinkedIn. And then Nikayan's all over YouTube, TikTok, all those things, Nikayan or Nikayan Foundation. And anyone can uh, submit their story or apply to, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and that's going to transition. But yeah, for the short term, there is the the opportunity to go to Nikayan.org, N-I-K-E-A-N.org. And uh, you can submit your story. You can actually watch a whole bunch of stories. We did about 150 hours so far of stories. So they're almost all up there now. Uh, and yeah, please check that out and, and let us know what you think. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much, Corey. I hope you enjoy the rest of your uh, your day here and the weekend. And yeah, really hope to be able to have another conversation with you in the not so distant future. Yeah, in person, come down to Kingston. Yes, we'll, we'll do I it at the center. To. Yeah. Thanks, brother. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Flying Sage podcast. There's nothing else that we're going to share with you today other than an invitation to sit back and relax and listen to some of the beautiful music created by my friend and Flying Sage community leader, Navin.